Well, guys, let me say thank you first for being a part of this. I know that as we put this together from the Center for Pastoral Leadership that uh, sent out emails to you all and all of you are a little hesitant uh, to speak because of the volatility of the, of the issue and, and how it touches so many people's lives. So thank you for being here. Let me say before we start our conversation that uh, the Center for Pastoral Leadership has a page on our website that we are putting together a resource for weddings and marriage. So there's already a video up there of a panel discussion about uh, weddings and how to prepare for them, how to do premarital counseling, and then there, uh, there's a walkthrough of a wedding. So we're trying to put resources together on that uh, center's website or that center's page on our uh, seminary website for that. So this will be there as well. Uh, in addition, we'll also have another video. Dr. Aiken's going to take part in uh, shooting a video about the issue as well. So there'll be at least four resources there, and this will be one part of that. So thank you all for being here and being uh, a part of that. Let me just say that uh, represented here uh, on our panel that uh, you guys know is a lot of pastoral leadership, a lot of pastoral experience. Uh, as well as writing on this issue. Uh, Dr. Jones has a, a book that bumps up against this issue pretty, pretty heavily in pursuing peace and uh, how to deal with conflict there and pursuing it even as you struggle with that. And, of course, Dr. Jones, uh, David Jones, you have quite a number of uh, publications on the issue and so uh, books with uh, Dr. Kostenberger as well. So we're uh, grateful for the way that uh, we can go to these resources and even on our center's website uh, we'll have a resource page that will link to that. So for those that are here, those that are watching, let me just say uh, we won't be able to address every question. There were four pages of questions sent in by our students. Uh, there were already issues that we needed to address and we're going to try to take those in order of priority here today. I put those under about four headings, four uh, topics that I want us to go after and then there are some miscellaneous things that we may get to. Uh, but there will be resources on the, on the center's website that uh, may be addressed in some of the books or some of the articles. So uh, let's try to figure out what we can get to today and uh, go there. Uh, the students here and on the website will have uh, a small flyer that will represent your views. Uh, and while today we're not going to debate views, that's not the purpose of this, I think it is uh, helpful and beneficial for us to just share uh, what are your, your views of divorce and remarriage specifically? And then today's panel is really, let's talk about what are the implications of that for church leadership. And uh, so, um, Bob, let's start with you. And just why don't you present your view just briefly? I know that we've got it written, so uh, I, I had already asked you, don't just read it. Uh, but tell us exactly, you know, just kind of give us a brief, what is your view on divorce and remarriage? Yeah, I think we always must start with the view of marriage, and I do believe marriage is a, a for-life, man-woman, uh, one-time, for-life uh, commitment you are making before God and uh, witnesses to love, honor, and cherish. I do think that the Bible teaches us that uh, God opposes divorce. And I'd like to put a big pause after saying that, so people feel the impact of that. Um, I say that because in the text that I'm about to mention that might I believe, allow for an exception. I see those as, as anti-divorce passages. They're not loophole passages. They're not exception passages. They're, they're anti-divorce passages in context. Though I think there are some exceptions embedded in them, and the two exceptions for me would be um, the, the, the Greek word porneia, understood for today as sexual immorality. We can unpack that if we need to. Physical sexual immorality, which is important when we talk about a, a question about lust as well as uh, abandonment by an unbeliever against a believer, or 
or a, a believer who's been disciplined uh, out of the church and who is being deemed as an unbeliever. So they're the two exceptional situations I see in Scripture. Okay. And from those exceptions, when divorce occurs, with those exceptions, are you um, in favor or okay with someone getting remarried? Yeah, depending on the circumstances, I do think that the right of divorce does entail the right to remarriage okay. in, the, in the context. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Dave, why don't you share with us, or David, I'm sorry. Uh, you guys understand I've got a strange thing. I've got two Dr. Joneses and two Davids. So uh, we, have, we have David and Dave. I'll try to keep that. We'll just do first names. Yeah, but, but we believe he's the best of the two. You yeah. put the Jones You've got one Dave, of each yeah. of you. Yeah. And, okay. yeah, he's the best of the two. That's great. That's great. <clears throat> David, why don't you share with us your view? Yes. Uh, my view is, as Bob's already shared, that the Bible clearly has the teaching that God's view of marriage, God's plan for marriage is one man for one woman throughout their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relevant passages that uh, speak to marriage really are, I think, uh, only controversial because of the fallenness and sinfulness of our world and that reality in our lives. And uh, based on my own study of Scripture, back when I was a pastor, before I ever entered into my uh, Ph.D. studies, but when I was a full-time pastor, uh, I came to the conviction that... Uh, as Bob has said, that biblically there are some circumstances where divorce, I like to say not so much divorce is allowed, but when a divorce occurs, there can be an innocent party whom God does not hold guilty in that divorce because it was uh, circumstances that they did not commit and was beyond their control. Uh, Where I differ with Bob in this view is that uh, based on... uh, the relevant passages, particularly 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul specifically says that if a woman is married, she should remain married. But if she divorces, two options are given. Uh, one is to remain single or to be reconciled to her husband. All of the uh, other verses that are used to speak to the permissibility of divorce, it seems to me like they're not, ex- or to, to, rather to remarriage after divorce, are not explicit, but rather inferences we draw from them. And so my conviction is that while some circumstances may allow divorce without guilt, I do not believe that remarriage is permitted as long as the original spouse is living. After that spouse uh, has died, then remarriage would be allowed. Okay. All right. All right. Dave? Thanks, Steve. It's, um, first of all, I'd say it's really great to, to be here. Um, just reading through the, uh, the questions the students submitted, <laughs> uh, what a great topic and what a relevant topic that we're discussing today. You know, there's a lot, a lot of landmines that we could uh, come across too, right? The, Absolutely. Um, but as far as my view goes, um, I guess I, I'm supposed to defend the view that's um, kind of known in the modern context as the no divorce and no remarriage view. Mm-hmm. I, I, would, uh, I would classify my view. When people ask me, I tell them, as the sheet handout says, that I hold the, to the historic view, um, mm-hmm. called the patristic view sometimes, which essentially is a no divorce and no remarriage view. Although, in reality, kind of by way of application, I think my view is, is pretty close to David's view in the sense that I do realize that oftentimes uh, there is someone who, who has been divorced. That is, they don't seek a divorce, but their spouse has divorced them, has left them. And really, divorce is not a matter of, of choice on, on their part, right? And so, uh, essentially, I guess I would hold to a, um, maybe I could caveat it a bit here, almost a, a separation but no remarriage view. Because while realizing that divorces do happen sometimes, I would say that remarriage is never allowed under any circumstance. And so I guess you could put me into, in your mind into a category as no divorce, no remarriage, uh, or a, a separation, but no remarriage. And I say separation because 
the reason why I'm not allowing for remarriage, because I would, I would hold that even when a divorce happens, that person still has an uh, inviolable uh, divine covenant in place uh, that God has established, which is why they then can't remarry. And so you may be divorced in the sense of having a piece of paper from the state saying that you're divorced, but I would say in reality, in God's economy, you're still married, which then means you can't remarry, hence my terminology, separation but no remarriage. Okay, so to nuance Dave and David's view, maybe the, the issue here just briefly is uh, the definition of divorce. Uh, I like that you would, you would clarify and say maybe a separation because divorce implies a breaking of the covenant. And David, am I clear to say that, that you would say the covenant is then broken, uh, but they're not free to make another covenant. And, and Dave, you're saying that, no, actually, even if they receive a piece of paper from the state, that the actual covenant is still in place. That, that's what I was. I'm not sure if, if we differ on that or not. I don't. Uh, no, I, I'm not sure that we're very much different on that yeah. part. Okay. I think the different might, difference might be that in certain circumstances, uh, if a person is not guilty of the actions uh, which lead to a divorce, which are the exceptions that Bob has mentioned, uh, there might be occasional times when I would actually counsel that innocent party to initiate the divorce for their own protection, legally and otherwise. Okay. Okay. Well, let me say just a few things before we jump into the conversation, just to kind of direct our conversation uh, a little bit. And some of it you guys have already mentioned. Um, marriage stats that are taken by various uh, studies, various forums, uh, tell us that the number of people who are getting married is on a decades-long decline, while the percentage of marriages that end in divorce has been steadily rising for the last half century. There's some fluctuation in individual years there, um, but the church has to respond to this reality. And uh, so our culture is uh, redefining marriage, and what we want to talk about here today is how does the church lead in that instead of following culture? And so as you guys respond here, I really want us to think about uh, speaking to and responding to church leadership and how, how we would lead and not follow the culture, how we'd be transformers of culture and not those who are transformed by uh, culture. So our, our, our discussion is not so much about the cultural response, but how the church should respond. Uh, and so we'll deal with issues of, you know, what if, uh, if any, are the reasons that someone might seek a divorce or um, what... What about remarriage after divorce? You, you know those things. Um, but let's just make clear what, Bob, you said at the beginning, and that is while we might hold differing views here, we're all in agreement that when the Bible speaks about this, it's speaking positively about marriage. And so one of the major things that we need to, um, to remember is that God has ordained and given us marriage as a great gift uh, by which we can live this life and, and honor Him and bring glory to God even with marriage. Uh, but we're sinners, and when sin has entered in, then there are broken relationships. And so even the discussion here reminds us that uh, we need a Redeemer. And uh, so we, I think we need to put that in perspective as we teach. And I know that even as all of us may differ a little on views... Uh, that's where we start. And so let's just start by encouraging those who are listening to say, start with the positive teachings on marriage. Don't make it all about divorce and remarriage and what are, what are, the, uh, what are the justifications that I can get out of this marriage. If you come to me with that as a pastor, I already know uh, you're starting at the wrong place. 
Uh, and so, Bob, you mentioned that. So I just wanted to say that God's plan is never divorce, but divorce happens because of our sin. And so we do have to respond to it. But within the framework of leading believers, then, uh, let me ask some questions to help clarify uh, your views on the grounds for divorce. All right. So, um, Dr. Jones, you have our, our Bob Jones, you have uh, indicated that there are at least two uh, exceptions that you believe the scriptures hold. And um, just remind us of, of kind of give us, you, you mentioned porneia and you mentioned physical adultery. Remind us of those just briefly. And you know, in some sense, they reduce down to one, and that would be a failure by the other party to uh, commit, uh, continue to uh, follow his covenantal commitments, okay. be it through sexual sin or be it through um, abandonment of the spouse, uh, persistent, uh, ongoing rebellion against God. And I think one thing, let me throw another caveat in terms of what we're all about here. I think in all these cases, I think all three of us as pastors and you too, Stephen, we all want to work really, really hard to preserve these marriages and to deal with the problems and counsel and intervene and lead people to confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. That's really important here. So you're seeing someone comes to me and wants to talk about divorce. Say, whoa, let's talk about the nature of marriage. Let's also talk about the nature of confession and forgiveness and repentance Absolutely. and all that. Um, so the grounds, yes, um, um, yeah, porneia and um, abandonment. Let me ask about one, and yeah. Bob, you take the lead here, and then I'll let everybody jump in. We had a, we had a, a number of students that asked about abuse. Uh, a couple of them just, in their questions to us, assumed abuse was uh, a grounds for divorce. And then some were asking, is abuse a grounds for divorce? Uh, so let's start there. Um, because it's so nuanced, let's start with physical abuse. Uh, would that ever be a grounds for divorce? Uh, and, Bob, you start there. And then we'll I, I believe it could be if it's persistent, ongoing, unrepentant, um, and unwillingness. It, it could be. One of the things I always want to make sure I'm doing, though, is, is testing the repentance of the, of the offender. But also, I want to know the attitude of the sinned against one. Uh, is he or she contributing to this? Hence, he or she needs to deal with the planks and contributions. Now, contribution is never cause. It's a crucial distinction. And then, um, is it wise for her to pursue this path? Those questions I would want you, to raise. Would you but at the end of the day, yes. I do think that uh, that unrepentant, persistent violence can be seen. And I know that, that God opposes and, and, and hates violence. Absolutely. Either one of you want to add to that? Yeah, um, well, I mean, first of all, just in regard to the whole abuse issue, you know, it's kind of reading through the, the student questions, uh, an issue that arose in my mind, I started wondering, is, I mean, are, are there some students here in our midst who are involved in abusive marriages? Yeah. Uh, and if, if there are, I mean, by all means, if you're here in the chapel, if you're watching, uh, seek help. I mean, call me, come see me in my office. These guys, your pastor, uh, I mean, by all means, do, do seek help. Um, and so, um, just with, with that kind of general statement, um, I would say ultimately, I, I wouldn't uh, view uh, abuse, physical abuse, as uh, grounds uh, for anyone seeking divorce. Although, if there was physical abuse taking place, um, the immediate separation, protection, preservation of life, um, and all that goes along with that, um, you know, if it's a abused wife uh, whose husband is also the, the breadwinner that's abusing his wife and you know, she's worried that she, if I 
if I leave and, and I you know, seek protection, well, then I'm going to be in tr- trouble financially. Well, a whole bunch of things uh, unfold then, right? I say, well, the church needs to step in then and, and be the husband and you know, provide financially. And so bottom line, uh, to your question, I would say, no, I don't believe abuse is grounds for anyone seeking divorce. But if somebody is being abused, uh, that needs to be, to be remedied. And step one would be to separate uh, the abused uh, victim from the abuser. It's a, you bring up something very important there, I think, uh, in the role of the church in that, that we need to uh, make sure that that separation is um, uh, helped uh, by the, the local church just surrounding and coming around. I think that's very important. David, do you want to mention anything there? No, I really concur okay. with okay. what both Bob and, uh, and Dave have said, and I think it's important to note here that there's a distinction being made between whether or not this is grounds to seek a divorce and how you practically deal with the situation yeah. when it occurs. And I think we're all in agreement that, uh, that we would never counsel a person to stay in a circumstance where they are being physically abused and where they are in danger. They need to get out of that situation, and the church needs to facilitate that. And yeah. call the police with a good conscience yes. and support yes. of the Absolutely. pastors and elders of the church. Yeah, this, is a, this is a huge issue, and there are legal ramifications. So let me just uh, address those who are listening here, because there were at least two questions on our student questions uh, to us that mentioned this. And both of them uh, dealt with, well, if I report this or if I do anything, uh, my spouse will lose their job. Uh, they have already disqualified themselves because, as Bob has said, God is opposed to violence. So if, if, if God reveals to you through these actions that your spouse is not qualified to be an elder, uh, take action. Uh, you must take action and uh, call the authorities. Uh, if you come to us, we'll help you do that. We'll, we'll push you that way. Uh, but do not live in the abuse uh, situation. You can't live there. Let me go a step further then, Bob, because you started here with physical abuse. There were questions about emotional, psychological abuse. Uh, would you just address that for a moment? Yeah, I'm very uncomfortable with seeing that in the same category of physical. I want to understand what is ac- actually meant by language like emotional, psychological, because I think we have to get down to concrete actions. If that, by that you mean verbal uh, harassment, name-calling, that's one discussion. Are you talking about forbidding, uh, locking doors? That's another thing. So the whole word emotional, psychological doesn't really help me at all. It's way too abstract. You can, yeah. you can make that mean a lot of different things. Yeah. But I would be very reluctant to see that in, on, uh, as a grounds for um, divorce. Either one of you want to address that? We'll, we'll move then. Um, let me just say one other thing. There are two other scenarios that I want to ask on grounds for divorce here. So we dealt with abuse. Um, secondly, we had a question about what if one spouse develops a mental illness? Um, uh, is that ever grounds for divorce? So any, I'll just open that up. Anybody want to hit that? It would, it would seem to me that for a spouse to develop mental illness would fall in the same categories if that spouse would have a stroke mm-hmm. or if that spouse would uh, develop cancer. Those are not grounds for divorce. Those are grounds for when we show the depth of our commitment and our love and our willingness to to serve them in any way we can to facilitate them in that situation. Because mental illness is not behavior or a choice that a person makes. All right. That's a good word. It's a good word. Um, Bob, let me come back to you and and ask you to address one thing as as a counselor here as well. We get this all often, too often really, Uh, But one of our students asked a perceptive question. Matthew 5 uh, indicates that unrepentant sexual lust is the moral equivalent of adultery. 
And so we had a question about a spouse that um, was coming, or, or uh, let's assume someone's coming to you and uh, this lady's husband is in unrepentant uh, uh, addiction to pornography. Uh, is that, according to Matthew 5, ever grounds for divorce? Why or why not? Yes. I, I would say no. Um, categorically. Now, by the way, in all our questions today, I hope our listeners understand there's going to be some nuances of situations, but no will be my categorical answer to that. And the reason is that I think you have, uh, exegetically, I think you have what we might call an etymological error here, an etymological fallacy, to use a a, a D.A. Carson term, where um, the root word uh, porneia is then equated by some to be pornography, I would argue that porneia, uh, there's some different debates, I'm sure, within us here what that means, but it, it, would mean, it would mean a physical sexual contact. The uses, apparently, from what I can gather, um, uh, David might know more than that, uh, it, it tends to be very much a um, physical. That's the one thing. The other thing is, the, in the context there, Jesus talks about uh, lust being the moral equivalent, I, I agree. He also talks about um, anger, being the moral equivalent of murder. But if we believe in death penalty uh, theologically, you know, I understand the application might be different in a culture, but if we believe in a death penalty, we, we would put to death a murderer, but we don't put to death a hater. Mm-hmm. And so how you treat the action of, of adultery, porneia action versus uh, a lustful thought, it would be equivalent to how we would not treat a hater of someone and put him in jail and prosecute him. So I think the contextual analogy is another argument for why pornography is not the equivalent of porneia. That's good. Did one of you address that or word on that? The whole pornography issue, I mean, it's, it's a whole other uh, can of worms, right? Sure, sure. But, I mean, you know, we, as with, with abuse, I mean, it, it, if there is pornography involved, you know, in your marriage, um, and your spouse is, is entrenched in pornography, and if we believe the surveys and stats that are out there, we know that's actually a large percentage of churchgoers, perhaps even of, of our students, uh, I would encourage you to, to, to get help. I mean, I mean, come see one of us. See your pastor. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. Let, let's move to um, another discussion for just a moment. And that's qualifications for ministry. Uh, a number of the questions we received dealt with uh, the passage in First Timothy, Titus 1, which uh, says a husband of one wife. Uh, that is a, a qualification for the overseer as well as uh, a deacon, and so we had some some questions about divorce in your past uh, related to that. And so let me just ask it the way one of our students asked this: Is a divorce in the past an automatic disqualification for pastoral ministry? I'll jump in. David? I would say, based on my understanding of uh, all the relevant passages, but particularly the First Timothy, there, the divorce itself is not a disqualifier. If the divorce was on the grounds of the biblical exceptions that we've been talking about, uh, and as long as they recognize the covenantal nature of marriage, and that spouse is still living and they have not remarried, then I do not see that as a disqualifier. I think the disqualifier in my mind would be if they remarry while the original spouse is still living. I also think that we need to recognize, I, I know this came up in some of the students' questions, that when we talk about a disqualifier, it doesn't mean it's a disqualifier from any avenue in every avenue of ministry. It's only a disqualifier from those particular offices that the biblical text specifically gives it as a disqualifier. Sure, I'd want to even add to what you're saying there, David, that um, leadership in the church is not a right, 
uh, it's a privilege. And so these qualifications are something for us to hold, uh, hold people up and say they, they meet these qualifications, do it like this. So uh, that's a good word. Let me jump in there on that question, Steve. The, um, you know, a lot of folks uh, I talk to uh, about, uh, about divorce and remarriage in, in our, our class here on campus, Foundations of Marriage and Family, when a lot, when a lot of students um, understand that, you know, that, my, that my view is fairly conservative on, uh, on um, divorce remarriage, a lot of them assume off the bat then that I would say that someone who's been divorced is disqualified from the pastorate. But in actuality, I, I don't believe that. I think the way David said it actually was, um, was very well said. Um, really, our, our view of divorce remarriage is, is one component. Our interpretation of 1 Timothy 3 is a kind of a separate component, right? And so the way I would personally read 1 Timothy 3 is I don't believe that that's a list of qualifications for ministry, as if it's some checklist you break out to see, like, you know, at the start of your, you know, your, your feeling of being called, you know, if you kind of make the grade to be a pastor. I think that 1 Timothy 3 is actually a list of, of moral characteristics that ultimately describe Christ. Right? And so I think it's a list of characteristics that the man who is called to ministry uh, should, should read and work through every day. Uh, and so, with that perspective on what I think is going on in First Timothy 3, when it says a husband of, of one wife, which I think is the relevant clause there in, in 3.2 that, that we're focusing on, um, I don't think that that's talking about, uh, about divorced or not divorced, because that would be a sort of a legal uh, qualification. I think it's li- literally talking about what the text actually says, it's literally a husband of one wife, someone who is Christ-like, who is devoted to, to his spouse, uh, devoted uh, today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And so, looking at that more broadly, I would say, for example, that you know, the man who is, you know, has a call to be a pastor who is struggling with pornography and has never been divorced, I, I would say, in a sense, he is disqualified from being a pastor at this moment because he is not the husband of one wife. He is devoting his heart, his mind, uh, you know, to images on his computer. Right? And, is, and is not all in devoted as Christ is to the church, to his wife. So therefore he needs to repent of that um, and, and body Christ and, and then, then go on. And so like David and I think Bob as well, um, I would not uh, believe that divorce automatically disqualifies somebody from, uh, from, from church leadership. I think that, there, that that's in a sense almost too simple of a, of a question uh, you know, to determine that. Absolutely. I tell our pastoral ministry students who walk through these passages, I don't believe what Paul is doing here is giving us a set of minimum check boxes. You know, you check this box and you can, you can do this. I, I think he's doing something much greater than that, and I appreciate you bringing that out. Bob, did you I want think to I would agree out? with that. I, a slight difference maybe on the grounds that, David, that um, uh, David talked about, but I would agree with the thrust of what they're both saying. And I would say that is a list of present tense qualities just like it has in there that you know he can't be a slanderer or a brawler or, or an angry man. I don't think that means if he was once angry, he cannot be an elder today. So it's, it's, it's present tense stuff. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's do one more transition here. And uh, I want to transition into how we counsel and lead the church. So I, I mentioned to you guys, even sent you ahead of time, some of the uh, maybe some scenarios that we could address here that may come up in the church. I want to start with that, um, David, with you. Uh, and some of our correspondence and prepa- preparation for this time, you mentioned that one of the major considerations that we must address here is the positive teaching of the church. And so just take a moment and address what you believe is the primary responsibility of church leaders in relation to this issue uh, in their churches. 
I appreciated what Bob said early on when he mentioned that these are not loophole passages. But unfortunately, we often treat them that way. We go to them to answer the question we're asking, when is divorce permissible? That is not the intent of the passages that they're given. The intent of the passages are to tell us God's plan for marriage, which is one man for one woman for a lifetime. And I understand our sensitivity to those who we're ministering to. Our churches are full of people whose lives have been ravaged by the tragedy of divorce. Either they personally experienced it or it's been in their family or among close friends. And we don't want to lay a guilt trip on them. We want them to be recipients of God's grace. We want them to move forward with their lives and glorify God with them. And sometimes our sensitivity to that is such that we do not stand up and teach God's plan for marriage as clearly being one man for one woman for a lifetime. And my concern is for the never yet married, the not yet been married, the starting with our children, especially our teens, and then our young adults. If the church is not clearly teaching them and reinforcing that God's plan for marriage is one man for one woman for a lifetime, and therefore you must be very careful how you choose a marital partner, how you choose who you will enter into that lifetime commitment with, then where are they going to get that teaching? They're not going to get it from our culture. They're not going to get it from, uh, from our public education system. They're not going to get it from the media. We are the only opportunity they have to hear that. So we cannot allow our fear of making other people feel worse than they already feel prevent us from that. In my personal experience, when I have taught or preached along this lines, I've begun with a caveat that I know many of you here have already experienced the, the tragedy of divorce, either personally or very close, and I'm not here to uh, make you feel guilty because I believe God's grace speaks to your life and your circumstance. But I want to speak to these who have not yet been married, so perhaps they can avoid that in their lives. And I find that I get the loudest amens, if you will, from the ones who were sitting there divorced. And I've had them come up to me and say, I wish somebody had taught me that prior to my entering into marriage. That's good. With, with this in mind, um, Dave, I want to come back to a while ago you mentioned... Uh, your, the view that you're holding as the historic, sometimes called the historic view. I'm surprised that Bob didn't jump in and say the view that he holds is called the majority view. It's kind of like we're, we're trying to position even in the name of our views sometimes there. But it, it, indeed, uh, the view that you're holding is not the majority view in our churches today. Um, tell me about when and why you believe that has shifted, uh, even with the teaching of the church. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I could I could authoritatively answer the, the why part of that. Um, sure. But certainly the, the when part, um, it's fairly easy to, to trace historically. When we um, look back through the church teachers and, and writers and preachers you know, throughout history, um, certainly at, during during Christ's time, the uh, there was a, a wide range of, of views that were out there, you know, coming from the Old Testament. Uh, everything from divorce and intermarriage for any reason to divorce and intermarriage because of adultery to no divorce and intermarriage. It was all out there. But we see that with the advent of the, of the church um, and coming of the Spirit of Pentecost and the formation of the church, and as the church kind of marches forward, as church fathers appear in the scene, we see that there was, for the most part, um, really, with, um, really without exception, the church had a unified view uh, of a no divorce and no remarriage stance. Uh, or uh, what I've said a separation but no remarriage stance. And really nobody questions that that was the case from the cross up until the 16th century. And so we have about 1,500 years where there really wasn't any debate at all among Christians over this topic. 
in the 16th century, um, what's known as the, the majority view today, divorce, intermarriage because of adultery or abuse, was articulated in a, a commentary written by Erasmus, his uh, 1517 commentary on 1 Corinthians. And that's when that, that view was kind of reintroduced uh, into uh, the Christian arena. Uh, although even at that time, it didn't become, become prevalent. Um, it, it's later enshrined in the Westminster Confession of Faith because of a bunch of reasons that we don't have time to unpack here, here today. But um, it really didn't become the majority view uh, in evangelical circles until about the middle of the, the 20th century. Um, and so reasons for that, um, you know, I, I'm sure Bob would rib me and say it's because the Holy Spirit guides in truth, right? And, and eventually, you know, the right, the right, the right view came. You know, well I, put, I, well you, put. Well put, yeah, yeah. You know, I would say it's interesting that it kind of arose as the divorce rate rose. Um, in the culture, it seems the church changed its view, right? The, um, and so, again, I mean, the, the why reason for, for why the, um, the historic view uh, is now not the majority view in reality, it's probably a bunch of reasons um, that are hard to pin down. So again, we can we can trace the when, but not the why. Okay. So let me let me move then as we talk about the teaching of the church, maybe the the adjustment of the view even in the church. Let me move to some scenarios to to get you guys to respond to. Bob, let me get you here. How would you handle a member of your church who is seeking a divorce that you don't believe is biblically warranted? So someone comes to you as a as a pastor and they say, hey, I, I'm ready. I'm done. I'm getting divorced. Uh, but it's not a reason that you believe is biblically warranted. Uh, how would you respond to that person? You know, I try to uh, avoid that, that discussion and reroute that into tell me about your marriage and tell me what we can do to help you because uh, no one gets married and wants to divorce at their, on the wedding day. And so I want to help them work that through. Now, having worked with them, and they don't see it my way or they become hardened against that, I will um, warn them not to go down this path. Please do not go down this path. And um, then the next step might be that we do believe in restorative church discipline work in this area. And in all my pastoral ministries, we've, we've done that in, in those cases um, of yeah, excommunication even. Okay. Yeah. So now... Just to clarify there, and maybe we'll we'll just stop here for a minute and get everybody to address uh, this. When someone actually goes through that divorce as a member of the church, um, you would lead your church then to uh, practice or to begin the process of a restorative church discipline. Yes, we would. Okay. Yeah. What does that look like as far as uh, yeah. going to them uh, with the spouse? Sure, sure. We we go talk to them individually bring the spouse in as much as both spouses are willing to participate in that and then just, you know, uh, ramp it up with some more believers, their small group, their care group. We involve them in that process as well. Now, again, we're not talking about the cases of the exceptions here. So remember, yeah, my view might be different on that point. Yeah. All right. Um, would you ever then, how, would it ever get to a remarriage before you would practice church discipline. So let me, let me shift to, to you two gentlemen, which would say maybe there was a biblically warranted divorce, uh, and both of you then would say, well, that's fine, no remarriage from your view. We understand divorce, we know that that's painful, but the Bible doesn't allow you to remarry. Would you then recommend church discipline or restorative church discipline to, to warn, guard? What would you do if they begin to go down that road? Dave, you first. All right. <laughs> David. <laughs> My response to that is that 
because this issue is one that, uh, that godly men uh, differ on their interpretation of, whether or not a biblically warranted divorce permits remarriage while the previous uh, partner is still living. And men who love God as much as I do and honor his word as much as I do have a different view. I think it would be hard uh, to make a case that, that church discipline in that instance is, is warranted. Um, if they came to me and asked my view, if they had respect for me as a pastor and said, well, how do you feel about us uh, getting married, you know, them and their, their, their newfound uh, person that they're interested in entering into marriage with, and would you be willing to officiate? I would share with them my understanding of the biblical teaching. I could not be the officiant at that wedding, but I would not see that as warrant for, for exercising uh, church discipline at that point. Okay. Okay. Anybody else want to respond to that? You want to? I think what David um, said is 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 um, a pretty good summary of how I would approach it. And you know, it's um, there were questions that students submitted, like you know, how, how would you um, handle uh, church life if you know if, if your view as a, a, a pastoral staff member was different than the senior pastor. And, I mean, I, I think that all kind of bears in on this as well. And so. In the scenario that you described, I guess it would make a difference. You know, am I a Lone Ranger senior pastor at a smaller church? Am I a staff pastor at a larger church? And, and there's unity among the pastoral staff on the view. Um, I think all those things would have to weigh in on, on the, the right path to take. But just drawing out of what, what David said a second ago, I, I think that um, the, uh, the idea that recognizing that, that there is a, a variety of views uh, among godly men the, um, I think that's that's real important, and so I guess I would be be hesitant uh, to engage in church, church discipline um, over a divorce or a marriage issue, unless the rationale was clearly something that is is, is sinful. I mean, if if there is a divorce that's being caused by unrepentant physical abuse, right, and and the, and the abuser is seeking to remarry, well, that's obviously a different scenario, right? So, so perhaps we should say the church discipline is going to come. Uh, toward and try to restore and warn against sin and divorce is not always that but it can be that so we're really focused on the sinfulness not necessarily whether there's a divorce or remarriage involved is that that yeah i love i love the way you put that i do think the the church discipline is always going to be related to sin at that point and i'd like to make a comment too i I really appreciate hearing both david and, and, and dave speak on this because um from the position of those who have a um more restricted, I, I don't know, it's not a pejorative term, we just have a, 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 less, you know, a less allowance for it. I think what you want to say to guys like me is, please be careful of that loophole thing. Please make uh, marriage really strong and please you know, fight for marriage and all that. And I will, and concurrently would want to say to you guys, and, and I'm hearing you say it today, go a little easy on some people who are victims of pornea or abandonment whose conscience says in their Bible, even though it might differ from your theology, go a little easy and not disciplining on those cases. So I think we actually would agree on discipline here. Yes. And Stephen, I'd like to add too that uh, you know, some of our students have raised issues not about church leadership and ministry leadership, but about family. What do I do if a family member Absolutely. who is divorced, and I don't believe it was a biblically warranted divorce, is getting remarried? And I don't think this discussion applies there because what I am permitted biblically to do 
in terms of my exercise of church leadership and my officiating as a pastor at a wedding ceremony is separate from my personal relationships and my family relationships. If I had a, just like if I had a lost family member, a uh, lost family member is undoubtedly engaged in, uh, in behavior that I disagree with. But that doesn't mean I would disown them as a family member. That doesn't mean I wouldn't permit them to come into my home and be a welcome guest. And so if I had a family member who was divorced and got remarried, even though I wouldn't officiate at that wedding, that wouldn't prevent me from attending the wedding. It wouldn't prevent me from welcoming them and their new spouse into the family as a part of my family. Because I do believe uh, you know, that, that whatever our position is, Bob is right on target, we must, must exercise it with God's grace. Uh, we could go down that way a while, and I'm going to come back to something, Dave, you brought up. Uh, among church staff, let's assume that you're on a, a, a multiple staff uh, church, and would, how would you, uh, as a lead, let's say you're the lead pastor there, you're leading the staff, how would you uh, deal with this issue of differing views within the staff and doing marriages and remarriages in your church? Yeah, great question. I, I think it, um, again, it's going to differ on you know, the size of the church and all that. I mean, if you're, if you're the senior pastor and, and um, you know, you're the only staff member, you know, if I was a senior pastor uh, you know, currently with my view, I would establish my, you know, my church policies, personal practices uh, in, in a way that follows my, my view of divorce or marriage. Um, you know, the, uh, there are so many issues... Uh, out there, I mean, almost every doctrine, you know, there's different views. I mean, there's a whole series of books by Zondervan, you know, three views of that, four views on this, whatever. And our job as pastors is not to be theological pluralists and, and just give every possible view and say, choose one. You know, our, our job is, is to, to choose an ecclesiology, to choose an eschatology, to choose a view of torture marriage coming from, from Scripture and our study of it, and to lead the people in, in, in that way. And so I would do that as a, as a senior pastor. And so, like, as, as David has said, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't officiate at a remarriage of someone who's been divorced, and that's contrary to my view. And so as a senior pastor, I would just have to tell people in my church, and I, and I, I can't do that, and this, this is why. But your broader question, well, what if you're a, a staff member? You know, what if you're coming on board a team of, of elders that uh, has, has different views? Well, I think personally at that stage of, uh, of considering that, that employment, you know, maybe during the, the interview process, the calling process, um, you know, I would, I would want to explain my, my own personal view at, at the start you know, so that they know what they're getting you know, before they hire me. But beyond that, I'm going to want to um, ask the senior pastor especially, well, you know, wh- what, is, what is your view and why do you hold it? And my rationale for that really is twofold. I mean, first of all, you know, while I've been writing and teaching and preaching on, on my view for, for years, um, you know, I, I could have missed something. Um, and maybe through a, a conversation with a godly brother that has a differing view, it would cause me to make an adjustment. I mean, I, I think all, all of us have experienced uh, shifts in our, our views and, and theology in various areas. And so I think having a healthy discussion is, is going to be very good for me coming into a, a church with a differing view. But secondarily as well, I'm, I'm going to want to find out why that senior pastor, why that other staff member actually has a differing view. Because what I found over the years is that a lot of people have shaped their, their ethics. Ethics is just applied theology, not based solely upon what the Word of God says, but based upon uh, their emotions, what they perceive to be the fairest doctrine, 
uh, upon their experience, what happened to me, to my parents, to my children, um, upon being pragmatic. And I'm going to want to make sure that my pastor's view of of this particular issue, as well as the rest of his theology, uh, on areas that we differ at least, that that he really does know why he believes what he believes. And if we both know why we believe what we believe, and we have differing views, and we're both within what I call the circle of orthodoxy, you know, we're, we're both on the table of, of, of uh, orthodox biblical interpretation, I think we could agree to disagree uh, and still serve together. And in the case that if I was a staff member, I would just default to my senior pastor's view by way of church practice and policy uh, and, and would try not to publicly oppose his, his teaching while still holding my view and if I get assigned to preach Matthew 19, you know, I'm going to preach my viewer. <laughs> but he'd be foolish to assign me that, I guess. And so default to authority on areas where there is room for discussion and charity. Because, again, I don't think we're talking necessarily about a, um, you know, a topic that is as clear-cut as justification by faith alone here. Yeah. Yeah. Let me shift a little and David to ask you a question. Let's assume that you have a, a church member that is a faithful church member that comes to you and says, um, I'm, I'm wanting to get remarried, and as far as you know, you've watched their life for five or six years, and uh, it's a faithful young man. And he comes, and he's been dating this girl, and he wants to get married. And he comes to you, and, and it comes out that he got right out of high school, married his high school sweetheart. They were married for one year and got divorced, no-fault divorce. He was not saved at the time. He's since come to Christ, been a faithful member in your church, and now is seeking to be married. How would you respond to him, and what would you say to this young man? I think in my response to him, uh, I would certainly want to you know, encourage him in his uh, you know, desire to, to live, live biblically. Um, this is a case where it becomes a bit awkward because my own conviction I would have to share with him but I also would want to do it in such a way that I recognized other equally godly men who held a different view on this. So the question, if I understand what you're asking partly, is does the fact that his previous divorce occurred prior to conversion impact my understanding of how the scriptures apply? And my, my response to that is no, it does not, because when Jesus established this teaching in uh, the Gospels, he was not addressing believers. This is pre-Calvary, and he's talking to the, the uh, broader Jewish audience. So I do not think that uh, necessarily the pre-conversion, post-conversion uh, uh, distinction uh, would apply here. I certainly would think that because he had been saved since that divorce, whatever that circumstances of that divorce, you know, he's experienced God's forgiveness and he does not live under you know, uh, the condemnation of, of that sin. On the other hand, I would not believe he was free to remarry, and I would not officiate at that wedding. Okay. Let me go down this road of, um, of, of discovering some of these past issues and past sins for a moment. Um, Bob, let me, let me start with you here. I know you've done a lot of premarital counseling. When a couple comes to you and they ask you, would you perform uh, my wedding, uh, what, what processes do you go through that would even help you discover about their past? And then how do you tell them up front? Uh, how does, what does that process look like to discover qualifications, what marriages you will do, whether they are, you know, this is a marriage that I will perform or not, and how do you address it? Yeah, just this two days ago, or past Sunday rather, four days ago, this, I, I met with someone for the first time seeking um, to, uh, premarital counseling there. 
Uh, I want to ask them about their history, so I want to learn, and I have no problem, of course, asking, have you been married previously? I, I have no problem asking questions like, are there any reasons that someone might object to this marriage? Um, any at all, friends, family members, things like that. Uh, but prior to that, they will have read my basic view of marriage, but I don't put the divorce exceptions into the basic view of marriage there. But what I do, and I think this comes back to what Dave, um, uh, Dave said, that we as pastors are never obligated to do a ceremony. If you're up front with your church upon arriving, uh, I make sure that the church never obligates me to have to marry the, you know, the daughter of the deacon who's rebellious and that kind of thing. Commercial, right? We've covered some of that in the uh, previous thing. You can say more about that, Steve. Um, so I ask those questions, and if it's a place where I'm not com- comfortable, I'll have to say I'm not free to do that based on my understanding of Scripture. But I'd like to work with you on maybe some matters of repentance. If it's been an unbiblical divorce, then I want to work on that person to bring them to repentance. And perhaps reconciliation to the former spouse if he or she is still living, which is really awkward, and I've had to deal with that, because they're there with ready to get married. Absolutely. Matter of practical question, has that ever occurred? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm not getting the details on yeah, that one, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know that we want that. No, it's, it's awkward, but that's where our conscience and our understanding of Scripture right. comes out. And so we're charitable, and we want to work with them. We love you. We want to help you. Yeah. And Stephen, if I could add there, uh, in my experience of pastoring before I ever entered into my doctoral work, pastoring in small churches, it seemed like I was contacted more frequently by people I didn't know about, you know, we're looking for someone to perform our wedding than I did for my own church people. And I always agreed to that meeting, even if I was pretty certain I couldn't perform the wedding. Because the first thing I wanted to do is sit down and ask them, tell me about your relationship with Christ. And explain to them that I'm not a civil servant. I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only wedding that makes any sense for me to officiate at is the wedding of two believers who understand Christ as the center of their marriage. So talk to me about your relationship with Christ. Um, because there's a pretty good uh, indication if they're contacting a pastor, they don't know that they're not actively involved in a local church, uh, which then raises the issue of whether they're even saved. So it's a great opportunity to present the gospel. It's a great opportunity to um, challenge those who are professing believers why they're not active in a local church. And um, I've had several examples of those conversations. Uh, usually they end with, well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll get back to you. And I never hear from them again. <laughs> Bob, you mentioned uh, a document. Let me just um, just say this uh, to maybe bring out a point here. You mentioned a document. They, they would have read my view of marriage prior to coming. So when, when someone contacts you about doing a wedding, you have a document that you just immediately email or hand them? or well, And hopefully they've seen it already if they're part of the church life already. Sure. But yes, sure. we want to have the, okay. not It doesn't always happen, though. And I might send it and they don't read it, but... And then we'll have the oral discussion there. On okay. site. Just a, um, a word of encouragement for those who are watching you know, and our, our current students. I always encourage students who, who take the ethics class and the, and the marriage and family class, um, is sit down before you get out of seminary, out of Bible college, and write out a one-page summary of, of your view of divorce and remarriage. Mm-hmm. Because this issue, it's, it's so emotional, it's so inflammatory in the churches, that it's, it's really going to go better for everyone if you have that in print. Uh, before you're hired, and you have it on file to give out uh, when these things arise, which which they will with 
you know, a fair degree of reg- regularity um, in your church. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly why I'm asking the question to make that very point that uh, you can't wait until the deacon's daughter comes and says, I need you to do this wedding and the deacon is standing there and she's been divorced or what. You, your view needs to have already been articulated to the church. And so uh, I appreciate that. Let me ask um, at least one last question. Uh, I think this, this may take us to the end, so we may get to more. But um, cohabitation has become something that is, um, that is very popular in our culture. Uh, unfortunately, that is just flowing over into the church more than, than any of us would be comfortable with. And this is partly why some of the marriage numbers are, are not what they used to be. So uh, percentages of marriages that are fail sometimes now have, are failing sometimes now have years that it's not rising because the percentages of people getting married is not rising. Um, so how would you address this as leaders of the church and how would you recommend the church to address uh, someone that says, well, we've we got to try this out so that we don't get a divorce. We need to figure out if this is going to work. Uh, as someone coming to us as, as pastors or as, as churches saying, this is one of those fail-safes so that we don't, we don't want to be divorced because we know you guys uh, don't, are not for it and we know God is, is opposed to divorce, so we want to do everything we can. How do you address that in the church? Yeah, I, um, I, I think obviously, and I, I think we would all agree that we would say cohabitation is sinful, right? <laughs> and so it's definitely, so. definitely wrong. And I mean, if someone comes to you, I, I couldn't imagine it actually happening, but if someone came to you and said, hey, you know, we're considering cohabiting because we want to you know, try it out before we get married, it was, like, and it was, it was before they did it, you know. Uh, I mean, you could, you, could, I mean, you could point to, I mean, the, I mean, there, are, I mean there, are, there are scores of studies that show, you know, that like, one of the greatest things you could do to make sure your marriage will fail is to, co- is to cohabitate. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so you know, it sounds logical, but it really is illogical because it violates God's, God's moral law. And so we can have that discussion, but it, it usually comes up where you know, the, the couple that is cohabiting you know, comes to your church and, and they, they want to, to, uh, to join the church or to be married. Right? And so then what do you do at, at that point? It's probably a more likely scenario that, that come, comes along. And so I'll, I'll ask that question to, to Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first response is praise God that this couple is coming to us. I mean, we ought to be excited about this, I think. Um, I also want to find out why are you cohabiting? Because I do think that there are some people who, for the reasons you cited, actually... This might sound a little crazy, but they have somewhat a high view of marriage, but they're very afraid. They've seen divorces in their background. They've had a previous divorce, and they want to make sure they get it right. Now, they wrongly do what, what, what Dave just said. They, you know, they, they live together. But I want to at least affirm that, and then I want to try to teach them the right way. If they are serious about getting married, then I would want to ask them to separate during that engagement period and that might mean us as a church helping them out, even financially, if they have to find another place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, if they can't, um, like I just married a couple, uh, couple who this was true, um, I did not allow them to uh, marry until they committed to refraining from sex. They had kids already. And it was actually, it would just have been unwise to break up the home with little children in it. Um, so 
I said, separate bed, separate, whatever you need to do. They committed to that, and they were faithful. Now, we sped up the normal time frame. Sure. <laughs> we didn't make it a six-month. We sped it up, and we've done post-wedding premarital counseling is actually going on in sure. a post-marital way. Sure. All right. Yeah. Yeah. David, do you want to address that at all? No, I would just concur with that. I especially appreciated Bob's emphasis. What sinner would we not want to have come to our church and hear the Word of God preached, yeah. no matter what sin they're involved in? That's a different issue from those who we're, we're responsible for when they have already committed to the membership of our church. That's when you know church discipline and all that comes to play. But as far as those who are living in sin, but they come to hear the Word of God preached, then, you know, Praise the Lord and pray that the Holy Spirit does a work in their hearts. Amen. Amen. Guys, thank you for the conversation. Let me remind our students and those who are watching online that this is part of a broader conversation about marriage and weddings and here divorce and remarriage. And so thank you guys for participating in that. And uh, uh, hope that all of this will be helpful. Uh, let me lead us in prayer as we conclude our time together. Father, we're grateful for your grace. We thank you that uh, we have a faithful Savior. And in the midst of the brokenness of this world, we have a gospel that uh, shines and uh, is worthy of uh, repeating to those that are hurting, those that are seeking divorce or remarriage, those that are in any of the issues that we've mentioned uh, here even today. Lord, thank you for these men and the wisdom they've shared with us today. I pray that you would take it and challenge us, push our thinking, uh, that we might be more like Christ and we might lead your church uh, to glorify the name of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much, guys.